You're listening to the City Lights Church Podcast with Pastor Jesse Miller. It's got a really good sound. That's all. That's all I got. I, uh, I could go forever. Thanks, Scott. Uh, I could go for a long time on this. Anybody know what this is called? I heard a lot of little, 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 little. I heard one correct answer. It's not a bongo. It's not a congo. It's a djembe. It is a djembe. Listen to that sound, like deep. Okay, so let me explain. Um, This is a djembe, and it's not spelled how you think either. It starts with a D. I don't know why. The D is silent. Um, Djembe. Uh, I love this thing. I love it. And you cannot get this anywhere here. You can't go to Guitar Center and buy this. You can buy a djembe, but you can't buy this djembe. Let me explain. You go to Guitar Center and you buy a djembe, well, first off, it's very different wood. And they don't have ropes. And this piece right here would be made more of a plastic material than you get at Guitar Center. It would be plastic. And it have like a logo right here. This has no logo on it. You know why? Because this is not plastic. This is goat skin. <laughs> Real goat skin from Africa. This, when I first got this, was covered in hair. Goat hair. It even had like a little goatee right down here. I think if you look, right there's a little patch left. And that's the only patch of hair that's left. It's the one spot that I haven't worn out over the years. I've had this for about 12 years now. And I love it. Not just because it's from Africa, but because how I got it and what it means to me. See, in 2005, I was traveling with my college ministry team and somebody gave our drummer in our group a djembe from Africa to use. And I saw other ones that other kids, because we went to camps all over, other djembes from like the local store. And can, when they sat side by side, very different sound, very different feel. And at first, I knew nothing about drumming or djembes at all. But I sat down with my friend who had one, and over the course of like those six, seven months of traveling, I loved it. I fell in love with this thing. So I finish my tour with my college group. I come back home. The Lord does some things in my heart and tells me not to go back to school for a little while because he's got to work on some things. And so during that time, I start dating Ashley. And so everywhere we went on our dates, I'd be driving, and all of a sudden my steering wheel turned into a djembe. I'm you know, doing this on the steering wheel because in my mind I'm still living my summer. You know? I'm still wishing I had one. And I'm, she's like, why are you always hitting the wheel? And I'm like, oh, because I love a djembe. I wish I had a djembe, but not these American ones, a real African one made out of goat skin. And she's like, okay, okay. So up until that point, I had dated a few different girls over the course of my high school, college life very shortly. And I had always said in my mind, like, the girl that I date during Christmas will probably be the one, right? So Christmas comes around, and I'm still dating Ashley. I'm like, well, I'm doing pretty good here, right? <laughs> and my mom talks to Ashley a lot. And she says, Jesse, this is my mom, what did you get Ashley for Christmas? I'm like, I got her some scrapbooking stuff. She loves scrapbooking. 
you know, we, that was before kids when she had time the scrapbook. And she's like, how much did you spend? I'm like, I don't know, like 50 bucks. She's like, 50 bucks. You need to do a little more. I'm like, why are you saying that? She's like, because I know what Ashley got you. I'm like, 100 bucks? She's like, <laughs> I'm like, sheesh. I've only been dating this girl for three months. Like, uh, I don't know, $200? She's like, hmm. <laughs> I'm like, it can't be 250. She's like, ooh. It's finally through this conversation, my mom subtly, without saying any words, reveals it's somewhere around $500. And I'm, my mind's blown. Because one, I'd never been dating any girl during Christmas. And two, had anybody spend anywhere near that amount of money on me for any purpose, other than my parents feeding me over the years, right? And I'm thinking... What? And so I'm like, she likes me that much? $500. So I'm like looking at every store. I'm going like as much scrapbooking material as my mind can find. I took everything out of AC Moore. Like it's, I'm not kidding. In our attic is this massive suitcase of scrapbooking stuff. It's been sitting there for years, right? But it's like everything I could possibly buy for $500. I'm like, I have to do the equal and here I am, like a guy going through college, coming out of college, working, you know, like at the time minimum wage was like $7 or $6, working that kind of grunt labor job. I'm like, I'm going all in, 500 bucks on scrapbooking stuff because she spent someone like that on me. Well, Christmas Day comes and I'm at her parents' house and, and um, I have this little box. I'm like, what in the world is in a little box? This is from her. It's no, I'm not joking. It's about this big. And I'm like, $500 in this little thing? I, this is too small to be a PlayStation, and I know there's no games inside of this. What could it be? So I open this up, and it's this plastic little like thing. It sits in your cup holder in your car, and it's got like a little swivel arm, and it has a, a flat area for sandwiches. It's all plastic. And I'm like, wow, I love it, right? And she's thinking she's hilarious at this time. I don't know it's a joke because I'm, it was her, I thought this is what my, my girlfriend got me for Christmas. She must think I love McDonald's because she gets me a tray for my car from McDonald's. And I, and I did enjoy it, but I'm like trying, like I'm like, my mom, I'm going to, I'm going to freak out on my mom when I see her. She lied because, and if Ashley spent $500 on this thing, she got robbed. I was so confused. And then uh, while I'm pretending to smile in front of her parents, Ashley disappears, goes upstairs, comes back downstairs with this massive box. She's like, I'm just kidding. She's like, this is your real gift. And I open it up, and here is this djembe with the case that she ordered from Mali, Africa. She had it. She called them. She figured out something where this, like, village people, like, carved it out of wood and got the real skin. She knew what I wanted, and she thought it was worth the investment into me. So I love this thing, not because I'm good at it, Thanks, Scott, for the thumbs up, though. But because it means something. My wife, or girlfriend at the time, thought that I was worth something. And when I knew that she thought that I was worth something, how did I respond? I wanted to give her something worth something. Make sense? I wanted to give her something worth the investment that she poured into me. And I would say in that story this morning, in that example, is the answer to one of like the old questions throughout society and throughout scriptures, trying to figure out how two things work together, how one responds to the other, okay? Um, it's the classics, one of, my, one of my least favorite questions 
that could ever be asked, and people say it as a joke, but I think they also want to know your response is, what came first? The chicken or the egg? And I would say, theologically, spiritually, there's that same question that's been going on for years and years and years. And that's, how does grace interact with works? Make sense? How are we saved? Is it by works or is it by grace? Which, how do these two things relate? Which one is important? What came first? How do they respond to each other? And I would say that the truth is the same thing that when I responded to Ashley because I knew of her gift to me, I responded with a gift back to her. Make sense? Turn it with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. See, all of us want to know a couple questions. Maybe not the chicken or the egg thing. But in the same idea is... How does one know God? How does one have eternal life? How does one experience all that God has designed for us? What does work have to do with this? How much work is too much work? How, many, how much work is too little work? What is my responsibility in this thing? How do we know God? Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, if you turn there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's talking to Christians here. This is to the church at Ephesus, okay? This is Paul writing to them. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want you to stop there for just a second. He says to them, the church, he's like, hey, you once were dead in your sins. You couldn't do nothing other than sin. And you followed whatever Satan said to do, the spirits around you said to do, the rest of mankind said to do. You were stuck. You were dead in that position. Make sense? You were children of wrath. That's who you were. It's all you could do. Verse 4, but God. Somebody say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, and not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We'll stop there. So I want to say a few things in that passage. You were dead in sins. You were dead. How can one get to heaven? There's a, there's a question in our culture today, or there's a thought in our culture that says that all roads lead to God. All ways lead to enlightenment. Whatever path you take, whatever religion you take, will lead you to some form of eternal life. It's your own pursuit, and they all end up at the same place at the same time, whenever you die. See, as believers, as Christians, we're walking through a foundational series. We believe that this is the Word of God, the only Word of God, and it says the only way to salvation is to accept that you were dead in sins and Christ made you alive. There is no other way to get eternal life or to know God outside of coming to faith through Christ 
and receiving grace. Make sense? That's what we believe. And this verse reminds us that you were dead. We were all like everybody else wandering around like dead spiritual zombies doing nothing good. Nothing good. So therefore, can we earn any kind of salvation? I feel like we have this tension. Even Christians have this tension. And even different denominations have this idea that, yeah, grace is there, but somehow we still have to do all these good works to get salvation to achieve heaven, to be with God. If we do all these things, somehow we will be good enough to really be a good Christian, right? I was just listening to a a thing on the radio the other day where the guy was talking about sainthood and how the one pope, you have to have two recorded miracles to become a saint. I'm thankful that Paul says to a whole church full of sinners, people who mess up royally but are saved in grace, he calls them saints, I'm thankful that you cannot, it's not the amount of miracles you do or the amount of good things you do that achieve sainthood. It's by the work of Christ that you are now alive in Christ and no longer dead. Make sense? You are dead. Let me ask you this. Can you earn salvation if you are dead? You can't. Have you ever seen a a zombie go for a job uh, interview? Like, I've never seen that on any of the zombie shows where the zombie shows up like, I would like to try to work for a living, you know. I'm kind of tired of just biting on people. That's what you were. You were dead. You were walking around dead outside of Christ. Maybe that's a little graphic for your... He just talked about zombies this morning. You were zombies. That's what this verse is saying. You walked around dead and you could not in any capacity do any amount of good things to earn your position in the kingdom of God. You couldn't. It's just not possible. You cannot earn salvation. Salvation is found in no one else. I think sometimes we still get this mindset that we are really good people and we do good things. And so God's like really happy with us. And like so we get these like get out of jail free cards because we earn a lot of them by good works in our society. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody dies like, oh, they were a good person. They're with Jesus. Well, maybe not. Unless they received his faith or his grace through faith, no, they're probably not getting eternal life. Because it says that, right? There's only one method to salvation, and it's not your works. You cannot do anything. Instead of coming up with this picture of God being some kind of like really like good God who gives out bonuses when we don't really need them, we need to think differently. Imagine this. Have you ever been in a restaurant where your credit card's declined? Right? Pretty, it's a pretty bad feeling, right? You sit there and you're like, what am I going to do now? Most of us pull out another credit card. This is not a perfect illustration, but imagine when it comes to salvation, you are at the restaurant with no money. You don't have another credit card. You don't have something else you can pay and earn it with. And all of a sudden, you hear the waiter say, oh, never mind. Somebody else paid for it for you. Like the gospel is you don't have it in your bank account. And you can't go get a job to get it in a bank account. You left the credit card somewhere where you will never find it. The one that works, you'll never, ever find that one. And God paid it for you. Salvation is not something that you can earn. It's only something you can receive. That's what this verse says. It's only something that you can receive. Grace is not a small assistance in your life of doing good things, thinking you got it handled, you can figure it out. Grace is a complete rescue. It's a complete rescue. You were dead, and now you're alive. It's a free gift we simply receive. Our culture says that all paths lead to God are in righteous, uh, enlightenment. 
But this scripture, the Bible says that there is only one who is good and there's only one path. See, I want to point out something else here. If you look in this text, in this passage here, um, our culture kind of has this idea like, well, God can't be good because then that's pretty limited to only say that there's one way. And if God's really good, he just lets us all in. No, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. A good God doesn't mean that God up in heaven. The reason people say that, the reason people want all those religions to lead to God is because they want some sense of control. Like, they want to be able to control it. Like, so all of it works because I just choose and I get to do what I want to do. I pick this one over the other one. So then, therefore, I have a sense of control. My acts give me a sense of control. That path that I choose over that gives me a sense of control. And the gospel says, no, there's no sense of control. It's either Jesus or nothing. And because I'm good, I'm giving you Jesus. That passage, I want you to look, I highlight a few thoughts here in this passage here. If anybody ever says, well, God's not good, or he's an angry, vindictive, judgmental God, I want you to look at this passage and remind them or yourself of this. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of great love, which he's loved us. So he's rich in mercy, he has a ton of it. He has a ton of mercy and great love for us. Verse 7, the riches of his grace. So he's got grace for us, a lot of it. He's rich in it. And in kindness toward us. And then he says, this work is not your own doing, but it's a gift of God. God the Father is a God who is rich in mercy, great in love, rich in grace, has a ton of kindness, and gives us the gift of salvation. See, this one path is a gift of God's goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his love for us. So the answer to the question is like, how, how can one know God? We believe that there's only one path, and that's through Jesus, and it's out of his good love for us, his great grace for us. You all good? I don't think anybody's offended by any of that stuff. I think you all, most of you guys get that. I want you to understand something, though, that the vehicle that you sit in, where you currently are, it's not your works. It's, it's that you're hidden in Christ and seated where? In heavenly places. Let that become a reality to you. It's not because of your good works. It's because of what he has accomplished that you sit in the vehicle of him able to do good things and you are currently in heavenly places. I can't do things right now to someday be seated in heavenly places. I am currently seated with him in heavenly places because of Christ. There's nothing that I can do to make my status any better. Pretty awesome, right? I've got the greatest thing that all of society's been longing for, this idea of eternal achievement in the afterlife. This verse says you already have that. You are currently seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where you currently are. Now let me read this last verse. Y'all still with me? Everybody still good? It's a gift to God, not the result of works, so that anyone should boast. So we have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to pat ourselves on the back about. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are saved by grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone, right? 
That's, that's how we are saved. And we're seated already in heaven. We can't get to heaven. We can't earn heaven. But because we're seated in them, we have become his workmanship, his craftsmen, the thing that he does, the thing that he creates. It's a sculpture. It's a painting. It's whatever art you want it to be. It's banging on a djembe. It's whatever art you want you to be. That's what you are from Christ. You are Christ's workmanship. You're hidden inside of him. And the reason you're his workmanship is so that you can do good works. And not just any good works, but good works that God thought about long, long time ago. He prepared so that we should just simply walk in those things. You don't have to go out here, open the doors and say, okay, what good things can I do this week? How can I balance out the good, bad scale in my life so that somehow I get to heaven? It simply says, because he already purchased everything, he's already prepared good works for you because he's created you and he made you alive. You're not a zombie anymore. You're alive in him and he's given you good works that you just go out and walk in. You just do them because you're alive in him. Does that that make sense? You guys still with me? Let me say this. Your actions should reflect God's goodness. Because he's so good, we respond to his goodness by doing good works. Workmanship should work. If you're workman, if you're workmanship, you should work. Right? It's like if I make tools and none of those tools do the job, they're pretty bad tools, huh? But God made you workmanship. He he created you for good works to do good works. You have a job to do. You have something to currently be doing for him right now. And let me say something else. Good works is not the law. You're like, like Jesse, didn't we get saved from the law that we, have, we get rid of the old, all the Old Testament stuff that we have to like go through and you know, stay away from shellfish and you know, do this and that and that? That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, if you want to, I would encourage you to read through the rest of Ephesians this week. It's only a couple more chapters. And Paul begins to describe to the church in Ephesus what good works in the Christian life looks like. It's unity in the body. It stops speaking negative, filthy words. Starts speaking life. It's wives and husbands loving each other the way Christ modeled. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And it's not law. It's not a list of things. It's just responding to the love that he already poured out. It goes back to the djembe thing. When my wife gives me something beautiful, what do I naturally want to do? I want to give her something back. And so the relationship between grace and works is that you and I should be doing good works simply because we recognize the goodness of him who gave us eternal life. If we miss that, if we're not doing good works, then I would question, do you even know what you've been saved from? That's why James is so confusing to people. They're like, well, it says without works, faith is dead. That means, yeah, if you had faith that was alive, you would be doing something with it. You would be doing something. You're not saved by your works, but you, because you've been saved, you produce good things. It comes out of you because you are workmanship. Workmanship should work. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. He, right before that, he says, you're not slaves anymore. You're friends. You know what I'm doing. You're friends. And if you love me, you do what I ask you to do. I have this conversation with my girls all the time. If my girls loved me and loved their mom, they would probably not wake up in the morning and punch windows out and flip tables. They don't do that. That's not the conversation I have with them. They would not punch their sisters 
or pull hair or be mean to each other. They would want to do things that honor and show love back to us. If they fully grasped my love for them, they would want to respond the same way. Make sense? That's what it means. That's what the gospel works. That's how it works is intertwined with the gospel. The two are connected. Titus chapter 2. So I've had, I've had this conversation a few times with my kids. We actually have a book over there called Loving Your Kids on Purpose. Um, and I would encourage parents, every parent to get it. It's really changed the way Ashley and I think of things. But in it, he talks about, like, we don't just set up this list of rules as parents. What we do is we ask our kids to protect our hearts. Because they see our love for them. And if they love us back, they protect our hearts. And so I trust that if I have this relationship with them, I honor them, I love my kids, I give them some liberties, but at the same time they protect my hearts, I know they're not going to go out and do things that break my heart. Does that make sense? When we live as Christians that way, when we understand the Father's love for us, then we respond back by doing things that protect his heart. So it's not about a big list of rules. We just simply get his heart. Jesus says this, if you love me, you keep my commandments. What are the commandments of Jesus? People come up and try to trap him. Like, Jesus, what's the greatest commandments? He says, the first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If we would learn to love the Father the way he has loved us with all that we are, and if we would take that same love and reflect it to other people and our other relationships, we would never sin, we would never break the boundaries of his love. Make sense? We would produce good works. So when I love the Father with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, all that I am, then I'm able to do good works for Will, for Jonathan, for John. I'm able to go down the generosity feeds, not out of some kind of like weird like religious structure. If I do this, then God gives me extra points. I get extra credit on the test. No, it's because he has loved me, I should love my city. And there are people in the city who don't have meals. So I go to Generosity Feeds and I spend my Saturday morning packing meals. Make sense? That's how works should be viewed. They are a partner with grace. There is something that is a a side of grace. They belong together. You can't have one without the other, but yet you are saved by grace alone and faith alone. And because of that, we produce works in our lives. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Right now, that's how we live. Not in the future. Right now, that's how we live because of grace that has appeared. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Because of grace, because we get that, we have this eternal hope, and currently at this moment we live away from lawlessness, we live away from wickedness, and we are zealous for every good work. We are zealous to do what he's called us to do. The best way that I can think of zealous, how many of you guys have had a kid who won't stop begging for something? Like, just amped up, hoping. Like, we had babysitters come Friday night. Eve and Christine, thank you very much. But beforehand, we already knew. I know my daughter. Ashley knows our daughters. And she said to Haley, she's like, Haley, I'm going to say this once. They'll get here. 
and you will be begging them to sleep in the same room and to stay up late. Don't ask. Don't even ask or you won't go to the bonfire. That was like, oh. So as soon as they walked in and we left, they said right away, Mom says we can't ask if we can stay up. Because we already know that they're zealous for that kind of thing. Yesterday, my wife had the thought of calling one of Haley's friends to see if she could come to the bonfire. As soon as Ashley said the words, hey, where is Faith's number? Not Faith, my, my daughter's sister, but her other friend, Faith. Where, where's Faith's number so we can call? Haley went, Woo! She's zealous for her friend. And then guess what? That number didn't work. Next thing you know, she's downstairs. Dad, do you have his number? I'm like, how would I have her dad's number, right? She's zealous for it. Like when my kids get zealous for something, it's so frustrating. They ask like 40 times. Like if you ask one more time when we're eating ice cream, I'll eat ice cream and you won't. Like that's how I want to respond, right? To me, that's the picture of zealous. And sometimes you and I, because we understand grace, this verse tells us that you and I should be zealous for every good work. That you and I should just be amped up to live a life that pleases and responds to the Savior. That we should want to like, okay, what can I give you? What can I give you back? You bought me this amazing gift and I know I can't get you the same thing, but here's what I got. You and I will never work enough to earn righteousness or heaven or our relationship with God. You won't do it because we can't. In fact, Scripture tells us that our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Let me... Is there any kids in this room? Let me, let me say this. The word filthy rags there is not like you just wiped the table over there as the kids rolled. It's used feminine products. Let's just say that. That's what this imagery is. It's, it's you, your, your best day is junk. It's not just junk, but something nobody wants to touch. Something unclean. Make sense? Your best work is that. So instead, because you've been saved by grace, you're seated with him in heavenly places, you respond with good works that glorify your father. It's all about glory. Everything is all about glorifying him. You were put on this earth to know his glory, to enjoy his glory, and to reveal his glory. And so because you've been saved by faith in Christ, you portray glory by doing the very works that he's created you to do. I don't know what that is. I don't know what your work is. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. I was listening to a message this week by Pastor Eric Johnson at Bethel Church. And he said, he preached this message, said, get off the bench. Too many believers feel, are playing the Christianity thing, their, their, their faith thing, like they're playing Little League Baseball. You know, there's only nine positions, so the rest of us got to sit on the bench because we're not good enough. The truth is in the kingdom of God, there's unlimited p- positions. The harvest is ripe, the laborers are few, Scripture says. So there's a lot of good works for you to do this week. Get off the bench. Recognize that it's because of grace you're able to respond with good works. That's the relationship of those two things. That's the relationship. Let's not flip it around. Let's not do some kind of works righteousness thing or where you do a bunch of works this week and all of a sudden you pat yourself on the back and be like, all right, God, I got this. I got this whole salvation thing. I think I'm good for here. He's like, no, you still need grace because you're arrogant now. You're cocky. Self-righteousness is, is a more dangerous sin than unrighteousness in my mind. 
I love that Jesus comes and he calls out the self-righteous and he embraces the unrighteous, doesn't he? It's the harlot. It's the tax collectors. It's the greedy. He's like, oh, come on, let's hang out together. I'll go to your house, we'll eat together. It's those self-righteous, like, you've committed the unpardonable sin. Like, you've already rejected me. You completely rejected what I'm doing in your, in your life. How can I work when you think you're better than me? How can I save you when you're trying to save yourself? You will never be saved saving yourself. Amen? That's good news because you can't do it. I can't do it. But what I can do is respond to his goodness. Let's stand up and worship. This, this morning we're singing a song. He's been so, so good to us. It, he has. He's been so, so good to you. Let's receive his grace and let's respond out of that this week by being so, so good in this city, by loving on God with all that we are. But first we have to recognize it's only because of grace that we can even come alive and do good things. You were dead, now we're alive in Christ. Let's worship.